This, after, this morning, I'd like to preach God's Word to you from what we just read in Ephesians chapter 5, and I'd like to direct your attention particularly to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, which our Lord Jesus Christ spoke at the beginning of His, mystery, of his ministry, and uh, this time we'll be reading uh, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30. Now remember that our Lord Jesus Christ had said earlier that He'd not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He also uh, explained that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees who were very legalistic and even through their up, uh, building up of many laws tried to uh, reduce it to be an external religion rather than the religion of the heart. And now our Lord Jesus Christ is explaining what that means also with respect to the seventh commandment. Matthew chapter 5 verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Brothers and sisters in Christ, create in me a pure heart, O God. That was a cry of King David. In Psalm 51 verse 10, he's confronted with his adultery with Bathsheba. And he cries out and he prays, wash me and, and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and, and cleanse me from my sin. He's praying, purge me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Psalm 51 resonates with us because that cry to God for a pure heart is a cry that every Christian will pray as you are confronted with your sin. But for many of us, it is especially sexual sin that convicts us of how great our sin and misery really is and how desperately we need not only to be forgiven, but to be made new by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Every other sin is committed outside the body, but the, but the sexually immoral person, he sins against his own body. And we know that that is true. Sexual sin is deep. It's a deep sin. It has deep consequences. Consequences for ourselves. Consequences for others and consequences for our relationship with God. And the reason for this is that the sin of adultery and all sexual sin is more than just a sinful act. Adultery and all sexual sin is the fruit of a sinful allegiance. It stems from a heart that has lost its first love. It stems from a heart that has lost its love not just for the husband or the wife of one's youth, but even more, it stems from a heart that has lost its love for God. And ultimately, that is what makes sexual sin so bad. And that is what should cause us to hate it and to flee from it more and more. And that's what should make us cry out even louder, create in me a clean, pure heart, O God. And as these things that I wish to preach to you about 
this morning. And turning our attention then to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, I'll preach God's word to you under this heading, Create in me a pure heart, O God. I have two points. First, stubborn sin. And second, hope for holiness. Well, when it comes to lust and to sexual sin, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us some very strong advice in in Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. But is sexual sin really so bad? Is it really so serious that if your right eye, when it talks about your right eye, my understanding of that is that this is your best eye. And that your right hand, that is your best hand, that if these things cause you to sin, that you should tear your eye out and throw it away, that you cut your hand off and you should throw that away. What is it about sexual sin that calls for such drastic measures? Now, although the Bible warns us very strongly about sexual sin, it does not warn us against sexual desire. I'd like you to think about that for a moment. Although the Bible does warn us against sexual sin, it does not warn us against sexual desire. Oh, yes, it does. For example, in the Song of Solomon, warn us not to have that desire aroused inappropriately or at the wrong time. But sexual desire in and of itself is not a sin, but is a beautiful gift of God. This Bible actually speaks very highly of this desire and about the wonder of a love between a man and a woman. And that's because God created us with this desire. And He created this as something which is good. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, when the Lord God had only created the man but not the woman, He wanted the man, this is Adam, He wanted him to realize that something was missing. And so the Lord, He brought these animals before the man so He might name them. But it says in Genesis 2 verse 20, But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I plan to speak more about this uh, in, in two weeks' time, but even already now, we can, we can see that the word helper, or in other translations, companion, is indeed a very striking word to have here. It's an important one, because, because when the Lord created the man and the woman, created the woman for the man, He did not simply create her to be some sort of a, of, of a sexual companion for Adam. He did not simply... Uh, Create Eve so that, so that Adam might have certain desires met. He did not create Eve so that Adam might have someone with whom he might, might procreate, so they might have children together. But he created her to be a helper fit for him, so that together they might be complete. So that together they might complement one another. So that together they might indeed reflect the image of God. Because this is what God said. He said at the beginning, He said, let us make man in our image. And then it says, and so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. The the Bible specifically mentions it is as male and as female that we are created in the image of God. And then to the man and the woman, He said, well, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. 
And so it was. As male and female that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. It was as male and female that together they might reflect that image. That they might, and this is our catechism's language, that they might together rightly know God their creator. Heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. That's what God did when he created the woman and he gave it to the man. And when God, what God intended for Adam and Eve is that they might reflect his image as male and as female. Even as husband and wife. And what God intended for Adam and Eve is what he intended for all people. And this is why it says in Genesis 2 verse 24, And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this does not mean that, that, that if you're unmarried, that, that, that you are a lesser of a person in any respect. Uh, to the contrary, Paul, he, he acknowledges uh, singleness to be a gift in, in, in 1 Corinthians. You do not need a husband. You do not need a wife to be complete. Because ultimately, we find our completion and our blessedness in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the Bible does teach us that there is something unique and something special in the fact that we've been created male and female. And there's something unique and something special about the way that God has given the woman to the man in marriage. And it was God's intention from the beginning... That it is in the marriage between a man and a woman that sexual desire would be acted upon in a good and a right and a holy manner. And it's in marriage, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 says, it is in marriage that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, But the wife does. And in that context, the love that a husband shows his wife and the love that a wife shows for a husband is good. It is right. It is holy. And this is a love that is intimate. A love that is private. A love that is exclusive. But that's not where things stand today. The fall into sin has done something terrible to sexual desire. The fall into sin has turned that which God created to be good, wholesome, and beautiful into something that is used for all that is bad, destructive, and ugly. Whereas God's design for sexual desire is to find its fulfillment in the relationship between a husband and a wife, in marriage, today, this is all separated from marriage. And today, it is even separated very often from from love and, and very often even separated from relationships. No, not always, but very often. And instead, today, sexual desire more often finds its expression in ungodly lust. And it is this ungodly lust that leads people away not just from the blessing of a loving and a fulfilling relationship in marriage, 
but it leads us away from the blessing of our relationship with God himself. And this is why sexual sin is so serious. Not only does sexual sin injure and corrupt our relationship with other people, not only does sexual sin injure and corrupt our own body and spirit, but sexual sin injures and corrupts our relationship with God. And that's why the Bible speaks so strongly and so often about sexual sin and the need to flee from it. We read together from Ephesians chapter 5. It's only one of many passages in Scripture, also in the New Testament, where we're warned against uh, sexual sin. But we read together from Ephesians chapter 5. It's 1 to 4. Therefore, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And this is this, but sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now notice that to be imitators of God, that is to reflect His image in true godliness and righteousness there cannot then even be the hint of sexual immorality among us. And it's not just a physical act of adultery, but it is all immorality, all impurity, all that is filthy. Yes, it says here, even crude jokes, foolish talking. And then verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God will punish the ungodly on account of these sins. And therefore, verse 7 says, therefore do not become partners with them. Don't join the ungodly in these things. And why not? Well, verse 8, verse 9, sorry. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. That is verse 8. Sexual sin can play no part in the life of a child of God. The world will live in sin. The world will embrace sin. The world will celebrate sin. But we are not of the world. We are of Christ. We have been redeemed from the world and from the lusts of the world so that we might be holy and blameless before Him. And that's why the sin of sexual immorality is so much more than the physical act of adultery. That's why the Lord Jesus taught in, in Matthew chapter 5, why he said, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, of course, the command for sexual purity means that we absolutely must keep our bodies pure both inside and outside of marriage. Of course, it means that any physical interaction of a sexual nature outside of marriage is against God's law. Whether that's in a casual context 
or also in a longer-term relationship. It's just not on. But it's more than that. Purity, true purity, is a purity that begins in the heart. And therefore, we must guard our hearts. But how do you guard your heart? How do you guard your heart from a sin in a world that is saturated with sin? The problem that many of us have is that we think we, think we are big. We think we're adults. We're grown up. That we mature, that we're strong. But are we really? Can we? And do we really keep ourselves unstained from the world? Are you really strong enough to stand against the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh? How is that going with you? How is it going with me? Where are you failing? Where are you falling? Or where are you in danger of failing and falling with respect to your purity before God and your purity with one another? In a world where Netflix is at your fingers, fingertips, where you can find porn in your pocket on your phone, where casual meetups and hookups are accepted as, as normal, how are you keeping your body pure? How are you keeping your heart pure and your mind? Because we're not big. We're not strong. And it is not as easy to remain pure and holy as we might want to think it is. Sexual sin is a stubborn sin. And almost all of us, both men and women, will feel its pull. Sometimes more than other times in our lives, for sure. But almost all of us will feel its pull in one way or another. And this is why the Bible commands us to flee from sexual immorality. And this is why the Lord Jesus commands us to do everything to fight this sin, to put it away, anything that might entice us to ungodliness. If your right eye causes you to sin, he says, well, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, well, cut it off and throw it away. It's, it's better if you lose one of, one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. But how do you do that? How do you pluck out your eye or cut off your hand? What did the Lord Jesus Christ mean when he said this? Well, first of all, understand it is not a physical cutting off, which is spoken about here. It was an early uh, church council, council of the churches, that is a, a, um, uh, a universal uh, gathering of, of church leaders in Nicaea uh, many, many years ago, then probably you know, in the 300s, where they actually had to make that very clear to the churches, not to actually do this because it was found that some people were seeking to actually cut off members of their bodies or emasculate themselves in the hope that somehow that would indeed free them from this. No, Jesus is not meaning physical cutting off. In fact, since adultery begins in the heart, the removal of an eye or the removal of a hand will not in and of itself remove the sin. I'm going to speak about that more in my second point. But what does it mean? What it means is this. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through that eye, then you need to do whatever you must do 
to take away that temptation to sin. Now, in today's day and age, there are some obvious applications to this command. If you're using your phone, your camera, your apps, your computer, your TV for sin, or even to be titillated, to be attracted to sin, which Jesus is saying, throw it away. Now, sometimes you do need to do that literally. Sometimes you do need to find ways or so and have those apps or whatever to, to block things from being able to come up on your phones or on your TVs and so forth. At other times, there are other things you should do. Keeping your phone out of your bedroom. Deleting certain apps. Deleting access to unholy websites. Installing a, a filter on your devices or devices of your family members, and certainly being held accountable to your husband, to your wife, to your parents, to somebody else. And then what if your hand caused you to sin? More broadly, what if the things that you do will lead you to sin? Now, this could be uh, not just with your hand, but this could also be the places where you go, the people you hang out with, the people with whom you spend your time, the, the phone texts that you send out, and so forth. If these things are leading you to sin or if they are enticing you to sin, if they're alluring you away from Jesus Christ, then you need to put them out of your life. Now, I trust that what I'm preaching to you today, it's, it's, it's not exactly new as if you've never heard these things before. Many of you would have heard this or similar things. But what are we doing about it? And what should you be doing about it? Now, just stop for a moment. And think about your own life and all that is going on in your life. This past week, this past month, this past year, even this past weekend. How's it going? Are you guarding your heart and your life with the urgency that Christ commands? Other things that you're watching, the places to which you are going, the people you are seeing, are they causing you to take your eyes off Jesus Christ? Are they causing you to take your eyes off the gospel and to play with sin in your mind? Are you in danger of sliding into sexual sin? Have you even fallen into this sin? Are you committing this sin again and again, perhaps even excusing it in your own mind? Let us be warned. Sexual sin is a stubborn sin, and we must be on our guard. Look carefully, Ephesians 5 says. Ephesians 5 is 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, the thing about all sin, but especially sexual sin, is that it thrives in the dark. It thrives in secret. And the thing about all sin, especially sexual sin, is that it is so hard to face in the light and to speak about it also with others. But we do have to do this. 
we do have to be open to be transparent also about this aspect of our lives. And so do talk about it. Do talk about it with your husband or with your wife. Or do talk about it with your parents or with your children. Do talk about it with others, with brothers and sisters in the faith, with those who can help you and can assist you and who can encourage you. And yes, do even reach out to your friend, to your brother, to your sister, and ask them, how is it going with you? Are you winning in the battle against sin? Is your heart pure? And what are you doing to keep your heart pure? And then let's pray about it. Seeking God and pleading with him that that we might put our sin to death and live in holiness and godliness before him. That brings us then to a second point. Hope for holiness. But is there really any hope for holiness? Will we win in the battle against the flesh? When the Lord Jesus said, if your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He taught something that is very important and that we must listen to. In our fight against sin, we must put to death all that is evil and place those things that might incite us to sin. We need to put them out of our lives. And let us therefore take these words to heart and live by them. But at the same time, be warned that in and of itself, this is not enough. This is not the only teaching that Jesus or the Gospels, the the, the New Testament, the Bible teaches us about fighting this sin. It's not enough. And what that means also is that although an internet filter such as Covenant Eyes on your computer or any other good quality filter is important, For myself, I find it a necessity. And even though staying out of Northbridge or wherever, late on a Friday night, and not going to certain establishments is what we should be listening to and doing, that's important also, whether we're younger or older. And even though It is so important that we avoid situations where we might find ourselves to be in a compromised position with somebody. These things in and of themselves are not enough. All those things are good. We should consider them. But they're not enough. Because simply not committing adultery is not all there is to say. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself said in verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that's the problem, you see. Because adultery is ultimately a sin of the heart. And so you can tear out your eyes, but that will not kill your lust. You can cut off your hand, but that too will not kill your lust. Ultimately, it is not an external amputation that Christ is calling for, but what he's calling for is a heart transformation. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ had already said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how he had said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's why the sin of adultery and all sexual sins cause us to cry out, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Wash me and make me clean and restore to me the joy of your salvation. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, even as we pray this, God will give us what we're praying for. Because there is no sin, no, not even sexual sin, that is outside of God's grace and his forgiveness. And our hope for holiness and our hope for change comes out of the grace and the forgiveness that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. It comes out of the promise of a new heart, a clean heart, a heart that is made pure by His blood and the Holy Spirit. And that's the context in which the Bible calls us again and again to holy living. That's the context of the command for holiness, for sexual purity in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, it begins with the words, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then it goes on uh, to, to warn us against all sexual sin. Therefore, why? It is because you are God's children It is because you are redeemed and saved in Christ that you are now called to live holy lives. And it's because of the gospel that we can live holy lives. See, the Bible says again and again in in, in Thessalonians, for example, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about this. It says, you used to be like this. This is what, what those who are not Christian, this is how they live, but not you. And this is also what Paul explains in, in, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse, one to, verse uh, 1 to 3, he already said, but you and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is before. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what you were, he said. But then Ephesians 2 goes on, verse 4 and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And therefore, he says in chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God. Therefore, reflect his image, the image in which you were created in the image of God as male and as female. And therefore, live with him in holiness and in godliness. That then is how we must live. And that is what gives us hope for holiness. You see, the problem with lust and the problem with sexual immorality is that it takes our eyes off Jesus Christ. And when our eyes drift from him, then our hearts grow cold. And then the lust of the flesh returns. And so our hope for holiness is found not just in running away from sin, but at the same time running to Jesus Christ. It is in the beauty of Christ 
that we will see the ugliness of sin. But to see that beauty, we need to be changed. To see the beauty of Christ, we need a new heart. Because by nature, by our old nature, we do not want Christ. By our old nature, we do not see Christ. We do not find Him attractive. Do you remember how Lord Jesus Christ was described in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2? Isaiah 53, for, we grew, for He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This is this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. Think about that. Jesus Christ, with all the beauty, the real beauty of God in bodily form, He dwelt among us But when he came to his own people, his own people esteemed him not. And that's the problem. For the unregenerate man, and for those who are still in their sins, the beauty of Jesus Christ is hidden. They do not see it. But not us. Because although it is true, as Isaiah 53 goes on in verse 3 to say, although it is true that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, and he was despised and we esteemed him not, nevertheless, we see Jesus and we believe that he, verse 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. And so through God's Holy Spirit, we see Jesus for who He really is. Through God's Holy Spirit, we we see Christ. And in Christ, we gaze upon the beauty of God. And the more we gaze at Him, and the more our hearts are filled with His goodness and with His beauty, the more we will turn from filth, yes, from the filth of this world, and the sinful desires of our hearts, and the more we'll be filled with Him. And that's what gives us hope for holiness. Because then we'll be living in the position for which we were created. Then we'll know what it means to be created male and female in the image of God. Then we'll desire, experience desire, yes, even sexual desire in the way that God had created it. Then we'll find our fullness and our contentment in Him. But then we'll know what it means to rightly know Him, to heartily love Him, and to live with Him in eternal blessedness, to praise and glorify Him. Amen.